You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information. So New Year's Eve, my wife and I watched the movie The Best Years of Our Lives, And honestly, I thought about this movie for days afterward. And since I do a history podcast, I thought it'd be interesting to discuss this old movie as part of the podcast. And since we're both teachers, at least she's still a teacher and I'm a retired teacher, I figured since we have the website Rotten Tomatoes, we should call this Bad Apples. Anyway, welcome to the show, my wife, Mary Jane. Hi. And Mary Jane, had you ever heard of this movie before? No, I'd never heard of it before. Yeah, me either. And considering it was so successful at the time, uh, and it's such a classic movie, to have never seen it or never heard of it, it's pretty amazing. So let me do a little background on the movie. It was made in 1946. That's the same year as It's a Wonderful Life. That makes it 75 years old right now. Uh, It was released one year after World War II ended, and it was the highest grossing film in all of the 1940s. In fact, up until this time, no movie had done more business except for Gone with the Wind. In fact, it's still the sixth most attended movie of all time in the UK. In 1989, it was one of the first 25 movies chosen by the Library of Congress for the U.S. National Film Registry. And I should mention this movie was totally free online. If you go to archive.org, you can watch it for free. The movie won seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Frederick March won Best Actor, Harold Russell, he won Best Supporting Actor, And as you know, in every uh, podcast, I ask a question of the day. So here's the question. In fact, by winning the Best Supporting Actor, Harold Russell became the only person in Academy history to have what honor? Do you know what honor that was? I don't. Well, you'll hang around to the end of this podcast, the end of the story, and uh, you'll find out. I should point out this is not an action movie. Do you agree with that? I absolutely agree that it is not an action movie. Yeah, I mean, you think... melodrama. Yeah, you'd think a war movie would be an action movie, but it's not. Uh, And probably the most noticeable thing about this movie, it's very long. It runs almost three hours, two hours and 50 minutes. Now, did you feel that it was a long movie or it just seemed okay? Well, I, you know, I sensed that it was long, but certainly, I certainly didn't think it was approaching three hours. Yeah, uh, when it ended, I thought it was about two hours. Just starting to get to that point where you get a little fidgety in your seat but I had no idea it was approaching the three-hour mark. It just never dragged for a single moment that we watched it. Now, the movie took place in Boone City, which is a fictitious town in the Corn Belt, and it's the story of three men who come back from World War II, and they had never met before their plane ride back aboard an Army airplane. And it's all about their attempts to pick up their lives afterwards. 
All three of them arrive home to warm greetings by their families, but they soon realize that life has gone on without them. And not only have they changed, but so have their families and the world around them. The movie does a great job of showing the difficulties that face soldiers returning back home after World War II. You know, the lack of jobs, lack of housing, and just the overall problem of readjusting into ordinary life. Now, there may have been other movies prior uh, to this that dealt with it, but I think this may be the first mainstream movie to examine the effects of PTSD. Uh, I mean, are you aware of any movie prior to this that dealt with that? No, not not so close to World War II. Yeah, I mean, this movie was, they started making this movie within months of uh, the war ending. So uh, we'll talk about that as we go through this. So I thought what we'd do is uh, talk about each of the three stories, starting with the oldest man first. So Frederick March plays Sergeant Al Stevenson. He's in his 40s, and he's a banker. What did you think about his role? Was, did it seem believable to you? Yeah, I thought he did a great job. Yeah, and, and he won the Academy Award for it, so I think others yeah, agree. that would make sense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, now, I would I would say the only part I didn't like about his role was when he played being drunk a couple of times, particularly is a scene where he's in a bar and he's really, really drunk and he's dancing with everyone. And then there's a car ride home and he's a little bit over the top, I thought. But overall, I really did like the uh, scenes and how it played out with him. Now, Myrna Loy plays his wife. Now, she was a big-time actress at this time, but she just basically has a subpart in this movie. What did you think about her? I thought she did a great job. She kind of represents the mature uh, spouse who understands her her um, partner, and she doesn't push too hard when he clearly is over-drinking a lot. I mean, yeah, I thought she did a great job. Yeah, I mean, uh, the one scene uh, where, she, uh, where he's drunk and she's counting, you know, she's taking her knife and carving how many drinks, uh, you know, he had into the table, that was... Uh, I don't know, that those seemed very realistic to me. You could just see the look on her face. Honestly, I, I thought she was the second best actor in this movie. Every scene that she was in, she just handled really well. And she wasn't acting over the top or anything. I just thought she was very realistic in what she was doing. Um, I, I thought she did a great job. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put her as the second best, but that's just my opinion. Yeah, yeah. so that's why we're talking about the movie. Now, their family is clearly well off. They have an elegant apartment, nice clothes, and everyone seems happy, at least at first. Now, you want to just talk a little bit about why he starts to become unhappy and why he turns to drinking? Well, I think when he arrives home, he can't believe how much his kids have changed. And, it, and there's actually, you know, problems of like almost a generation gap. Um, his, the, when he speaks to his son and gives him a tries to give him a sword from from Japan um the son almost can't relate to what what he's gone through yeah um honestly i thought the son was the worst actor in the movie he was so stiff and uh they wrote him out i mean he was only in the beginning a uh, couple of scenes and then he just disappears from the movie uh the daughter which is teresa wright she's a big character in the whole movie but the son never appears again uh after that and i think that's probably because he was he wasn't that great of an actor i could be wrong uh i couldn't help but wonder why they even put his part in there i mean why couldn't he have just come home and you know had one daughter and not a son who was so stiff and such a bad actor and really uh was written out of the movie you know pretty quickly well, I mean, he did even question what was done during the war, right? Dropping of the atomic bomb. I, th I think that little piece was important for the storyline. 
Yeah, I, I guess, but it, it just, uh, I just didn't like what he was doing. <laughs> he, 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 I thought he was the worst part of the movie. I mean, the movie was very good, but that one little, anytime he was on the screen, I just felt like he couldn't act. So anyway, that's my opinion. So Teresa Wright played his daughter. And uh, had you ever seen Teresa Wright before? I don't think so. No. Yeah, I've seen her in a few movies. The first time I think I ever saw her was in a, a Alfred Hitchcock movie uh, called a Shadow of a Doubt. I uh, probably saw that about 35 years ago or so. It's just, you know, go, going through a phase where I was watching all the old Alfred Hitchcock movies. And I actually really like that movie. It's a very good Hitchcock movie. It's not one of his most famous ones like Psycho or Rear Window or Vertigo. But it's a really, really good movie that he did. And that's the first time I ever saw her. Um, now, she plays a key part in this movie. Not only is she Al Stevenson's daughter, but she becomes a love interest of the next character we're going to talk about. Because that's Captain Fred Derry, who's played by Dana Andrews. Now, Fred was a crew member on a bomber and is awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. Yet he returns home to find his life back home is far worse than it was when he was dropping bombs. You want to talk a little bit about what his life was like when he came home? Well, he can't seem to find, it seems like he's underemployed. He actually goes back to where he worked before and he called, described himself as a soda jerk. You know, so he's he wants to do better, but he can't seem to find better employment. And that was a common problem uh, after the war. All these men came home and there was no place for them to uh, find jobs, at least uh, good paying jobs. Now, his character supposedly married uh, 20 days prior to leaving for war. And his wife, Marie Derry, she's played by Virginia Mayo. And she plays kind of a ditzy, uh, you know, showgirl, I guess you could say. Right, almost trashy, I yeah, would say. trashy is probably a good way to describe it. Yeah. Uh, what did you think about their interaction? Well, clearly they were married kind of on the fly. And um, she wasn't really so interested in him so much as the soldier that she had met right before he left. And there's a scene in the movie where he's he comes in and he's not wearing his uniform and she is not impressed. Right. She's very disappointed just to see him the way he's dressed. And he is uncomfortable with the fact that she wants him to put back that uniform back on and he kind of wants to start a new life. Right. And also he's not earning enough money for her. She has very expensive tastes and he was earning good money in the military, but now that he has a civilian job, he's not doing well. And she's just complaining. You know, she's basically whining and complaining right. uh, about she, it. She's definitely not as uh, empathetic and nurturing as the other women characters. Yeah. yeah. You know, you know pretty early on this marriage is not going to work out. Yeah, I mean, he gets back. He can't even find her, actually, because she's working in some nightclub. He doesn't even know where she is. Right. And, uh, and, and it's kind of clear that, uh, you know, they couldn't do this in the 1940s, but it's clear she's been with other men. I think that's implied uh, by her character. Right, right, definitely. Of course, another love interest comes into his life. That's Peggy Stevenson, who's played by Teresa Wright. And she's playing uh, Al Stevenson, Sergeant Al Stevenson's daughter. Did you feel that that relationship as it was building, that it was, I don't know, to me it didn't, seem like a real relationship. It's like almost like they looked at each other and then they're in love and, you know. Yes. I, I mean, it may not have been as developed as it could have been. Yeah. It did seem like suddenly they really cared about each other out of the blue, sort of. Yeah. yeah um, it seemed a little thrown together. Um, I, I would have liked to have seen that developed a little bit better in the movie. Uh, I would say there's one of the few weaknesses in the movie is that that one little uh, story arc, that little portion of the story wasn't developed. It's almost like they, you know, it was like instant love and right. Um, no, it, I 
it, I agree. it didn't play as well as I had hoped. I think if they had uh, somehow thrown a little bit more into the movie to uh, develop that, it would have been better. Now, one of my favorite scenes in the movie was at an aircraft graveyard in Ontario, California, where uh, he is walking along through all these right. uh, airplanes that are being dismantled. What did you think about that scene? I thought it was great. I mean, there the was really ominous music, and you understood kind of right away that he felt, you know, like he was becoming obsolete, kind of like the planes. Yeah, it, it basically, uh, you know, now that the war is over, there's no use for these planes, and there's no use for him. And right. uh, honestly, I thought it was spectacularly filmed. I mean, just that scene, it, it was just so grand to look at. Just, just uh, something that will probably stay with me for the rest of my life. I mean, there really wasn't much dialogue. I can't play it for anybody. But just, you know, you can see him reflecting on his life. And it's also a turning point in the movie, but I'm not going to give that away. Right, right. Now, the third story that's interwoven with the other two leading men is that of Homer Parrish, played by Harold Russell. Right. And uh, he's, a, he's a Navy man who worked below deck, and he, he, he claims he never saw combat that basically he was below deck for the entire war. And of course, what happened to him? They were bombed, apparently, and his his two arms were burned off. Yeah, and uh, would you agree with me that you weren't sure for most of the movie whether he really was an amputee or not? Oh, absolutely. That That's what it kind of kept me thinking, you know, like, is this guy a real, true double amputee, or, is, or are they? do they have kind of like pretend prosthetics on his arms? I couldn't tell. Well, of course, what is the truth? The truth is what you actually discover watching the film at the towards the very end is he is truly a double amputee from the war. And it's the the scene is is pretty startling. Yeah. Yeah, I I I think uh the scene where he reveals that, you know, I mean there were other scenes where he was getting dressed like there was a scene where his father helped him get ready for bed, him. but they never yeah. showed uh, you know, that he was missing the the lower portion right, of his arm. Right, below his chest area. They didn't really show. Yeah. Right. I think actually the best scene in the movie is when he is with his fiance Wilma and he's trying to explain to her what life is like living with a w- double amputee. And, uh, you know, they go up to his bedroom and, and he's getting ready for bed and he's showing her right. what, what he's and, going through. And you'll every night you're going to have to help me with this because they have to remove the straps and everything. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that was the best scene in the movie. I don't know if you agree with that or not. As I, I described it, it's kind of startling. And, and yeah, yeah, I mean, it's memorable for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so why don't we play a short clip of that? Great. Okay. So to set this scene up, Homer, who's played by Harold Russell, he's up in his bedroom in his parents' house showing his fiancée, Wilma, who's played by Kathy O'Donnell, what it's like when he removes his prosthetic arms for the evening. This is when I know I'm helpless. My hands are down there on the bed. I can't put them on again without calling to somebody for help. I can't smoke a cigarette or read a book. If that door should blow shut, I can't open it and get out of this room. Who's dependent as a baby that doesn't know how to get anything except cry for it. Well, now you know, Mama. Now you have an idea of what it is. I guess you don't know what to say. It's all right. Go on home. Go away like your family said. I know what to say, Homer. I love you. And I'm never going to leave you. Never. 
uh, let's talk a little bit about Harold Russell uh, quickly. Um, sure. Because he was not an actor. From what I read, the part was originally written to be about a man suffering from shell shock, but it was rewritten after director William Wyler saw him in a military educational film that was called Diary of a Sergeant. Uh, and by the way, that's for free also on archive.org. And I think it's also on YouTube. It's uh, worth watching. Yeah. Also. Uh, basically, yeah. it was footage of him and how he learned to adapt with these, uh, basically, these maneuverable hooks that he had uh, for ha- for hands and arms. Right. And uh, honestly, I don't know about you, but I was amazed what he could do with that. Yeah. I mean, actually, if you watch the film, you'll learn that he has to move his right um, shoulder blade in order to use his left hand and his left shoulder blade to use his right hand or right. or pincers, you would almost right. say. This is in the documentary, in the not, documentary. Not, not in the movie we're talking right. about. Right. Now, you know from the beginning of the movie, from the best years of our lives, from the very beginning, now you're not really sure if he really has prosthetics or not, but you know he's really good with them because the first thing he does is like he signs his name and then uh, another time he, he lights a cigarette for someone else. Yeah, he, he grabs the matches and he lights yeah. the matches and lights the cigarettes and he and he lights it for the other two guys. Um, pretty uh, amazing. I, I the whole movie. I just you know at first I wasn't sure if they were real or not, but holy cow! I mean, he had incredible skill. Right, and at one point, of course, it's a duet, but he actually plays the piano with his uncle in one scene. Um, yeah, and I should mention the uh, uncle is Hoagie Carmichael, who is you know very famous as in his, famous in his day. Okay, I didn't know Hoagie, but that's great to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I should tell you. I mean, you you actually know this. I think that um, he lost his limbs not in combat. But he was in the United States training right. others, and uh, he went to grab a box of TNT, and it had a defective fuse, and it blew up, and that's how he lost his uh, two arms. Right, right. But still, you know, it's just as tragic. Yeah, um, and uh, he, he was a student at Boston University when they asked him to be in the movie. Um, and in fact, when the movie ended, shortly after all the publicity and you know, all the fame had died down, he went back and he got his degree from there. So he didn't stop his education, become a big movie star. Right. Um, it was one of the few roles that he actually did. Now, did you think him being a non-actor was good or bad? I actually thought it was um, a real positive. I think they took a bit of a gamble and it really paid off because he injected a bit of realism into that character. Um, you know, all the other characters, you know, they ha- kind of have a Hollywood look to them. They're, they're actually quite attractive and all that. He's kind of, he looks like your next door neighbor and right. um, he even had a regional accent which I liked. Yeah, you know. except it's supposed to be it's in the... Bostonian. It's Bostonian. <laughs> and in they're it, supposed to be... You don't really notice it in the movie until you, you think about I it after. I kind of noticed it, oh, but noticed it. I well, love accents, though. Yeah, but, but you're a, a language, language teacher. teacher. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, he's a Bostonian accent. He's supposedly, you know, raised in the Midwest from when he was a baby. So right, a little right. out of place, but I didn't notice yeah. that. But honestly, I thought every scene that he was in was the best part of the movie. I'm not really sure this movie would have been as great if he wasn't in that movie. I think it would have just been an ordinary, you know, war movie. But because he was in that movie, I thought uh, he made all the difference. I, I absolutely agree. Yeah. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. 
Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So this leads to the answer of what honor uh, Harold Russell has with the Academy for the Oscars. And that is he's the only person to win two Academy Awards for the same exact role. Um, So basically, they didn't think he'd win Best Supporting Actor, but they wanted to honor him somehow. So they gave him an honorary Oscar for, quote, for bringing hope and courage to the fellow veterans through his appearance in the best years of our lives. So that was his first Academy Award that night. And then, of course, later in the evening, he won Best Supporting Actor. So he's the only person in history to get two Oscars for the same exact role. Now, do you think he deserved it? Yeah, I did. I I thought he did a great job. As I said, they took a risk in a way, but it really paid off. Um, Yeah, I I think it was well-deserved. It has nothing to do with me even being an amputee. He just made the movie. He made it more realistic. Without him in the movie, the movie would just been an ordinary movie. He is what made this movie exceptional. Yeah, I mean, the other two, you know, one is you know, possibly going to have issues with alcoholism and the other is, you know, uh, dealing with depression possibly. But his problem is it's pretty front and center and you, you do grow to care about the character. So which of these three stories did you like best? Of course, we have the older gentleman played by Frederick March who, uh, you know, is a banker and he has this, you know, he lives in a very nice apartment and everything seems to be going well, although he is on the verge of becoming an alcoholic. And then we have the second part, uh, Captain Fred Derry, played by uh, Dana Andrews, uh, you know, and he can't seem to find his place in the world. But he comes back, he can't get a good job, his marriage has fallen apart. And then, of course, we have Harold Russell as Homer Parrish. His biggest problem, I think, is you know, try, not just having people accept him and not treat him differently, but he can't understand why people would want to treat him in the same way, particularly his fiance. Why would she want to marry him now that he's a double amputee? So of those three characters running through the movie, which one did you uh, like the best? Well, I think I've already kind of indicated that, but again, it's going to be the, the one with Homer 
parish and his uh, his sweetheart, you know, or or just his circumstance. The sweetheart doesn't have a very big uh, part herself, but just him accepting what he has and not feeling self conscious. Yeah. Yeah, it, he definitely is the best part of the movie. As I, I mean, I've said this several times already. Without him, I don't think the movie would have played as well. Now, would you say this is a political movie? I mean, it, I would literally call it an ode to the American GI. Yeah, you know, so. um, I mean, there's very little in the way of politics in there. You already mentioned about the Sun talking a little bit about bombing and and nuclear power and so on. So there is one scene where Homer goes into the pharmacy and he sees uh, Captain Fred Derry. He's the one who's playing the soda jerk. And a man walks in. And that's probably the most political portion of the movie. The guy basically is questioning why we were in the war. And I have to be honest, I was kind of shocked by this. Now, they never really tell you why he disagrees with, uh, you know, the United States being part of the war. He just keeps saying, you know, kind of read the facts, look at the facts. But it is the most political part of the movie, but it's not a political uh, movie. So I thought what I'd do is play a clip of that. Okay, that sounds good. So let's take a listen. You've got plenty of guts. It's terrible when you see a guy like you that had to sacrifice himself. And for what? And for what? I don't get you, mister. Well, Anything else for you? Check. We let ourselves get sold down the river. We were pushed into war. Sure, by the Japs and the Nazis, so we had... Oh, the Germans and the Japs had nothing against us. They just wanted to fight the Limeys and the Reds. And they would have whipped them, too. We didn't get deceived into it by a bunch of radicals in Washington. What are you talking about? We fought the wrong people, that's all. Just read the facts, my friend. Find out for yourself why you had to lose your hands. And then go out and do something about it. So what did the title, The Best Years of Our Lives, mean to you? Well, I didn't have a lot of time to think about that question, but um, I possibly what's ahead of them now that they're back. They're back from the war, and you hope that what's ahead of them is the best years of their lives. Now, there's only one time in the movie that they kind of mention something like Bring that. Bring up that. Yeah, Marie Derry, who's played by Virginia Mayo, she, she plays the showgirl, uh, you know, uh, cocktail waitress, I guess. And she says something to the effect like, oh, I gave up the best years of my life. So let's take a quick listen to that. All right. Yep. So here's a short clip with Fred Derry, who's played by Dana Andrews. He comes home to find his wife, Marie, who's played by Virginia Mayo, alone in their apartment with another man. She claims he's just a friend. Did you know him while I was away? I know lots of people. What do you think I was doing all those years? I don't know, babe, but I can guess. Go ahead. Guess your head off. I could do some guessing myself. What were you up to in London and Paris and all those places? Huh. I've given you every chance to make something yourself. I gave up my own job when you asked me. I gave up the best years of my life, and what have you done? You flopped. Couldn't even hold that job in the drugstore. So I'm going back to work for myself, and that means I'm going to live for myself, too. And in case you don't understand English, I'm going to get a divorce. What have you got to say to that? So... I interpret the uh, the title uh, when I thought about it after with, uh, after seeing the movie. Mm-hmm. The way I interpreted it was that basically all these people, they were way at war. The families were back at home. They all gave up the best years of their lives, that they missed out on so much. Whereas you're, you're looking at it from the opposite point of view, that they have the best years in front of them. So maybe it's a combination of the two. Possibly. That, that, that's, that's the way I saw it, though. Yeah. 
So Mary Jane, I said what my favorite scene is. What was your favorite scene in the movie? So my favorite scene takes place at the very end of the movie. And I'm, I'm going to try not to give too much away, but it's where there's a family gathering in a home and it's very intimate. And at one point, the character of Homer Parrish has to do this very basic task. And it seems like everyone in the room kind of holds their breath. They're not sure he's going to be able to do it because he's using his hooks to do it. And uh, he's, he does succeed. I'm not going to tell you exactly what it is. but um, And then there's this kind of sigh of relief from everyone. And they know uh, at that moment that he's going to have a happy life. He's going to succeed, even though he has this terrible disability. And um, I just think the message is very positive. It's, it's almost... I feel the whole movie is a bit of a love story to the American soldier and the message is it's, it's going to be all right. You know, the ending message. And I just think it's, it's, it's a great way to finish it. And I, I really was very impressed with that actor and I do call him an actor, even though he was an amateur actor. So that's my favorite scene. I hope I didn't give away too much. <laughs> yeah, uh, I will add to that. I did read that he fumbled his line at that point and they decided to leave it in because it made it more human you know, made the, made the ending more realistic. Yes. I, I think, as I said earlier, I think they took a bit of a gamble working with someone who was a non actor, but he made the film. He made the film. I totally agree. <laughs> so as you know, it was include three additional short stories at the end of each podcast. So I thought it'd be interesting to see what the critics thought of this movie when it was first released. Now we're not going to read them in their entireties. We're just going to read excerpts of each. So Mary Jane, why don't you start with the first one? This is from the December 26, 1946 publication of the LA Times. What most differentiates the best years of our lives from other post-war emprises is the presence of Harold Russell, the ex-army paratrooper. He appears as one of the three central male figures whose stories are related. While his is not an acting part of great exactions, he succeeds in bringing enormous impact through the utter simplicity and sincerity of what he does. His work endows the best years of our lives with factual power. The Russell adjustment to the civilian environment is a deeply wrought thing, the most moving and central development in the plot. What the war brought him besides ephemeral glory is a physical tragedy that has beset many men loss of hand or foot or other permanent disability. Wow, that was very well written. Let's do another one. And this is from an article written by Marjorie Adams that appeared in the December 26, 1946 publication of the Boston Globe. The Best Years of Our Lives, which had its Christmas Day opening at the Esquire Theater, is one of the best pictures of all time. There are few films which have such unqualified appeal to men and women of every walk of life to the connoisseur of the cinema, and to the everyday picture-goer who is looking for entertainment and doesn't particularly care how superior is the technique as long as there is an engrossing story. The article continues. The picture runs three hours and they are good hours. There are few films that can stand up against such a test, but the best years of our lives is so heartwarming that everyone who has already seen it in the preview room has already made arrangements to see it again at the Esquire Theatre. The article concludes, The Best Years of Our Lives is an eloquent tribute to returned veterans, a magnificent, brilliant contribution to motion pictures as an art, and a Christmas present handsomely wrapped in silver paper with crimson ribbon and gold stars for audiences who don't get excited about art, 
but who do love a fine film. Mary Jane, why don't you read the last one? This is from the November 22nd, 1946 publication of the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. It is not only the most significant film story yet told about veterans of World War II seeking their places in the post-war world. It is also one of the few brilliant films of the year, combining a fresh and utterly human drama with beautiful acting, heartwarming writing, gentle, unpretentious directing, and the fine technical touches, photographic, scenic, and sound that nearly always are to be found in a Goldwyn production. Okay, so we're titling this Bad Apples. So on a scale of 1 to 10 bad apples, how would you rate it? You know, before you and I talked, I I definitely thought it was an 8. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it'd be nice to see some more films because we're just starting this. Maybe I would actually up it a little, but right now I'm putting it at an 8. Okay, that's where I put it as an 8. I think the movie's excellent. Um uh, I really, really like this movie, but you have to put yourself in a 1940s frame of mind because it is a black and white movie. Right. Some of the acting is is typical 1940s, not like uh, acting is today. So, you know, if you if you take that little bit out, it's it's a great movie. So would you recommend this movie to others? I would recommend it to someone who really likes history and, and is willing to watch a black and white film. I, I thought it was, you know, very interesting. Yeah, yeah, I, I would definitely film. recommend it also. Uh, I would just say anyone who wants an action movie, this is not for you. And, you know, I do know, having been a teacher for 30 years, there are some people, particularly, you know, students who will not watch black and white movies. They just, as soon as they see black and white, they just turn it off. So that could be a problem also. But I do recommend the movie. I think uh, people should, if you have even the slightest interest, you should just go to archive.org and uh, pull up the best years of our lives. I think you're really going to like it. One thing that really I was thinking throughout the movie, and it's kind of spooky, is that not a single person that you're looking at on the screen yeah. there is alive anymore. Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, Teresa Wright, who I always remember as a young woman, I mean, she was probably in her you know mid to late 20s when this movie was made. I mean, every movie I've seen her in, she's been a young woman, and she's not alive anymore. Uh, I mean, probably the only people who could be alive are the little kids in the movie, the ch- but, yeah, the ch- but, but they just actors. had very, very minor yeah. uh, roles in the movie. So every single actor is no longer alive, and that's kind of sad to think about. It's kind, it's kind of spooky, yeah. Yeah. So I'd like to thank my wife, Mary Jane, for being part of the show. You are very welcome, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> Occasionally you'll hear her doing uh, some French uh, pronunciations or some Spanish for me in the podcast throughout the years. But overall, this is the biggest role she's played, other than being forced to listen to every episode before I post it. Right. So let me know what you think about this segment. Should we keep doing these movie reviews? Uh, and if you saw the movie, what did you think about the movie? Did you like it? Did you dislike it? Just let me know. I'd be curious to know what other people think. You can post your comments on Facebook. Uh, You can go to my website, which is uselessinformation.org, and there's a link there to contact me. Or you can email me directly at steve at uselessinformation.org. That's steve at uselessinformation.org. Again, the movie is The Best Years of Our Lives, and it's available for free on archive.org. There's lots of great movies there, TV shows, uh, old-time radio, and so on. It's a great source. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Um, you do have to be careful on archive.org because they have no filters, a lot of adult material, so you don't want your child uh, roaming around there. But anyway, uh, you can also stream it through Amazon and Redbox. I'm not really sure um, if Netflix had it, but Amazon and Redbox both charge $2.99 to watch the movie. Uh, you can also check your local library. I checked our local library, and 
they can pull in DVDs from libraries in the region, and they have three copies available uh, within basically a 20-minute drive of our home. So I suspect that your library will have it in stock also. Anyway, thanks for listening, and uh, thanks again to my wife for uh, participating. And You are welcome, Steve. Yes, uh, <laughs> and uh, take care, everyone. Okay, bye-bye. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.